Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. How do you how do you juggle promoting and urging caution at the same time? I don't need to, um, you know, put any more stress on the body and, and save it for for a Saturday. They know from players you can't just keep beating them up. Well, this week we're talking all about rugby and particularly the guidelines that have been recently released by World Rugby and the international rugby players around contact training load. And it's a very controversial area in that uh, there are a few players and a few critics of the new rules that say, well, is rugby coming rugby becoming too soft? And if players aren't getting enough contact in training, doesn't it really make the risk of injury during the game itself a little bit higher, et cetera, et cetera. And we're very lucky to have uh, Professor Ross Tucker with us in our podcast because uh, he was one of the people involved in coming up with these contact training guidelines along with our guest today who we'll introduce in a short while um, to talk a little bit about what the guidelines mean, how they come about and uh, some of the misconceptions about what people are criticizing world rugby around these guidelines. So Ross, just give us a bit of an idea about what the motivation was behind these uh, contact training uh, load guidelines. Uh, Yeah, so... At the risk of using negative imagery, if you think if you think of player welfare in in all sports, because as we'll discover shortly, there are many sports dealing with similar issues as a war, then contact is one of the battles within the war. So there's a larger story here about how sport and specifically rugby is trying to address injury risk, and that's two and that's on two fronts. One is injury risk that happens immediately. An ACL, a concussion, Mm. a shoulder injury, a broken arm, whatever it is. The things you see on television. And then there's a second um, territory in which this battle is being fought, which is an injury today that may have consequences decades later. And the contact load guidelines are, are targeted at both. And so it's been apparent for probably a decade. I mean, certainly since I started working as a research consultant to World Rugby, which was now five, six years ago, the training offers what you could think of as low-hanging fruit because even though the, the relative risk of an injury in training is much lower than a match, so much more of your time is spent in training than playing matches. Mm. I mean, a, a professional player who plays a full 80-minute match is probably doing, hour, I mean, think about how many minutes of training there are for every one minute in a match. It's, you mm. know, in huge volumes of training. And so the consequence is that about 30 to 40% of injuries happen in training. Mm. And that's a controllable envi- environment. And so what we have said, and when I say we, I'm talking now about the international rugby players, which is the head agency that, that represents them in this conversation. The players themselves. Yes. Yeah. It's a body that has a number of player delegates, uh, delegates on it. And then, of course, World Rugby have come together and said, let's, let's lead by advising people. And what our experts recommend is the optimum amount of contact that you should do per week. Now, the principle there, and if you've, if you've stuck with this rugby podcast so far, thank you. But the, the principle is the same, irrespective of what sport you look at. Because mm. a triathlete, a runner, cyclist, tennis player, golfer, rugby player, it's all about managing load. You know, the fundamental question is, how much do I need to do to get better, to perform at the level I wish to? As opposed to at what point do I start doing too much that I increase my risk of injury, illness and underperforming because of overtraining. And finding that balance for contact specifically in rugby was the objective. Now, the guest you've got today is, of course, um, Conrad Smith, former um, All Black legend, and he's part of that uh, international rugby players group. And I know that you're going to be talking to him a lot about some of the specifics. But one of the interesting things that comes out of this, and for those of you who have read about it online uh, through various channels, 
is that the contact uh, portion of this is 15 minutes per week. Now, as a non-rugby playing fanatic, that sounds like an inordinately small amount yeah. of time when you compare that to an 80-minute full contact game that you're only going to be doing 15 minutes, and that's spread over two days of contact. Well, so the, the important missing word there is full contact. Yeah. So one of the things that the group, and, and just by way of reference background, the group gets pulled together and it's got coaches in it and we're talking top coaches. These are not some local guys that you just find. This is Stuart Lancaster, it's Joe Schmidt. Players like Conrad Smith are on it. Strength and conditioning experts like the, the guys who prepared the New Zealand men's and women's teams. These guys and women know how to do this. <laughs> it's not guesswork from guys in suits or labs. Um, and the, the first challenge was what is contact? Mm. Sounds like a crazy question, but you can divide contact into the full high-intensity contact that a player will experience in a match as opposed to what you can do quite a lot of at low risk, which is what we then called controlled contact. And so one of the, one of the frustrations and part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast was to try and clarify this because the media, when it was released, picked up on the 15 minutes, just like you have. Yes. And the context was absent. The and damn they, media. <laughs> we're part of that now, too. But we're trying to fix their... We're their, terrifying We're trying the to media. fix their headlines. So you see this headline, 15 minutes of contact, and everyone says, how can you possibly get ready for what I watched at the weekend, South Africa, yeah, New Zealand, in 15 minutes? Yeah. Well, that 15 minutes is part of, of another big... It's one puzzle piece. So there's controlled contact which we defined as being intensity less than seven, small-sided, using shields and pads for extra cushioning in a controlled environment where there's more predictability with a lower density of contacts, lower frequency and density, which is distinct from full contact, which is not quite no holds barred, but that's game simulation. Yeah. That's body on body without shields and pads. That's unpredictable environments where I don't know what you're going to be doing. And so the risks go slightly higher. That's intensity of eight, nine or 10 out of 10. So we were quite um, particular about defining what full contact was and controlled. And we said full contact 15 minutes per week is enough. More than that, you start to actually increase the risk of energy injury without any additional benefit mm. to technical ability. So if you want to work on the technical stuff, then allocate that into your 40 minutes a week of controlled contact. So actually we've said 55 minutes of contact. We've just divided it between those two types. And as we'll see in the interview um, that's coming up, we won't, don't want to give it away too much, but actually it's not far off what the players are doing currently, is it? Yes, and so what the, what the players did, and this was wise for practical reasons, is let's ask the world what they're doing. Because let's say for argument's sake, you ask professional rugby players what they're currently doing and your expert group comes along and recommends something that is outrageously different. That's a failed initiative because nobody would adopt it. It'll be rejected out of hand. If you imagine advising people 15 minutes and you've discovered that they're actually doing an hour, now you're taking away <laughs> 75% of what they did. That's yeah. A, it's probably going to fail dramatically because... There is such a thing as evolution of best practice. People figure out what works naturally in these environments. And if anything, you, you only ever have to pull back slightly. Um, you very rarely have to tell elite athletes to do more. It's, as you'd know from other conversations we've had, it's more common you've got to tell them to do a little bit less. But yes, we surveyed the, the rugby playing population, elites, as much as we could, we discovered what they were doing and the recommendations that were eventually arrived at are not that different, which I think would surprise a lot of people. There's definitely a perception among casual rugby followers and even some media that a professional rugby player is just tackling an hour a day every day in yeah. the build-up to a game. And that's, that's not what actually happens. Yeah. So I guess the million-dollar question is, what's the motivation behind uh, all these guidelines? Why is World Rugby so keen to uh, make rugby safer? So I asked Conrad this question. Uh, I'm not going to tell you his answer. You can listen to it for yourselves. But from my perspective, the motivation is, is player welfare. And the sport is genuinely invested into optimizing the welfare of players now and into the future. There are people obviously listening to this will say, of course they're not. It's just they want to make money and the players are modern day gladiators and are expendable. But that's not the case. I mean, World Rugby states that it's player welfare is its number one priority. 
that position has driven a number of decisions. We spoke about the transgender debate. It, yeah. That was underpinned with player welfare as the number one responsibility. And so they, they are committed to evidence and to making good decisions around player welfare. And that's really where this comes from. And it's part of, as I mentioned at the outset, a bigger picture. The sport is under pressure. There's no denying that. I was going to say, it's not just uh, there is some potentially financial reason why this could happen. Yeah, and we've seen, you could go back probably 10 years now, and you could see this, this imminent rise in awareness about brain injury, which mm. is good. The NFL went through its phase a decade or two ago, and, and they've obviously got that, we're talking in the billions lawsuit that was settled against players mm. who said that they should have been warned, the sport had a duty of care and to survey that it neglected. Rugby now, there's a similar lawsuit. There's a, I saw at the weekend, actually, bobsled has now been named in a lawsuit for the same thing. So people are rightly concerned about the consequences of concussions. And now there's a lot to be said about World Rugby's approach to concussions. I'm biased, obviously. But if I if, if World Rugby wasn't committed I wouldn't be in a I wouldn't be in that job. So so I think there's reasonable evidence for my bias at least. Um and, and yeah, so so this is as I said part of the part of the puzzle. And it's a piece which we hope infiltrates the sport. As, I, as, as you'll discover, those who are doing things right won't need to change much. Mm-hmm. But every announcement like this makes people more aware, more aware of the risks, more aware of what the experts say is the best thing to do. And it's as that knowledge filters and then percolates down and across, that's what's going to lead to safety. So that's the, that's the intention. One of the interesting things mentioned in the reports is that uh, the rugby players and for your research going forward is they're going to be wearing these biometric mouth guards. Just explain how those work. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, that's going to be the big breakthrough. I mean, it is it is the new horizon. They've been they've been what are called instrumented mouth guards for a number of years. That's basically your typical mouth guard like many of you listening would have worn playing school sports your kids maybe now are playing with but these ones are special because they've got a little accelerometer inside them and a little (laughs) computer chip and they are able through some fairly sophisticated engineering to measure what's happening around rotation and excel and linear acceleration of the head because there's reasonable ground you can imagine that the greater head acceleration is the greater the chance of a of a brain injury and so for the first time really we've got good valid robust data from a number of rugby players there's a study being conducted right now down in otago in new zealand with 700 players at the community level so that's men and women boys and girls aged from 13 into adulthood and we're measuring what's happening in matches what's happening in training what circumstances are causing the highest head accelerations how can we make situations safer to reduce that And starting very soon will be a similar study in the professional game. We've got a number of teams who've expressed an interest and they'll they'll also be tracked and then head accelerations measured. And the intention is to understand everything from Mm. from diagnosis, you know, there's no in case anyone's interested, it's not like there's a threshold, say thirty five G's that you're guaranteed to get a concussion. Sometimes people have forty G accelerations, no problem, and sometimes twenty causes it. That's an interesting question. But what we'll get is diagnostic support, treatment support. Maybe there are law changes. Maybe there's technical education that we can start to give. So this is going to open up in the next five years half a dozen potential interventions. So, And, and one of them, by the way, will be contact in training. I mean, you'll, you'll hear we, uh, we recommend 15 minutes full contact, 40 minutes controlled, and uh, 30 minutes set piece in five years. If this goes to plan, you might actually be able to count how many contacts they've been using mouth guards and then cap it at actual numbers of contacts. So there's a, there's a lot potentially to be done there. Right, so coming up, I interview with uh, Conrad Smith, the 94 caps for the All Blacks, two World Cups behind his name. Probably more importantly, Ross, uh, probably the, the thinking man in terms of the, the player's re- responsibility. Why was he so involved in this process? Yes, remember when he, was a, when he was a player, he was so formidable, and you used to watch him play and say, this guy is out-thinking you <laughs> as much as he's out-dominating you physically. And I actually even asked him a clumsily worded question about that because of the culture of it. But he was a... He was a lawyer and a player, not maybe practicing, but he's been involved with the rugby players agency effectively for a few years now. 
And every single interaction I've had with him is just so impressive because he sees things through so many different lenses and he's unbelievably thoughtful. And as a, as a legal mind, plus a player, he was working now since his playing retirement in, in high-performance coaching. He covers all the bases and just is, is, is one of those guys, you hear him speak and you say, this is an incisive thinker, which is why he was an incisive rugby player. So mm. as formidable as he was on a rugby field, he's as formidable in the whole player welfare battle. So it really was. To talk about this issue, there's no one else I would have rather spoken to than him. So the closest to the horse's mouth as you could possibly get. Conrad Smith. Conrad, thank you so much for joining us. Really looking forward to taking a dive into those contact load guidelines from last week, but also to just talk generally about some of the, the player welfare and safety issues that you're now involved in. I think most listeners will know Conrad Smith, the rugby player. The, the South African listeners especially might look back at you as a, as a nemesis of Springbok rugby for many years, but wouldn't necessarily know about your new career as a legal representative for the international rugby players. So perhaps in your own words, you could just describe the journey that took you from the rugby field and the all-black jersey into this world of legal representation for international rugby players and, and what some of your main focused interests and passions in that role are. Um, yeah, well, firstly, hi, Ross. Hi, Ron. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's, I, I suppose, um, for me, it, it's been a you know very enjoyable journey. Obviously, the experience of of playing rugby professionally and you know sort of making it to the All Blacks was uh, yeah dream come true as, as they say. And um, you know being able to travel and play in South Africa, like you mentioned, was you know they are my favourite memories, my favourite games to be honest. And I get asked that a lot. And playing South Africa in South Africa was always uh, you know the biggest challenge for me. And I, I suppose. Really, um, I'd, I'd managed to, um, I hadn't had the, a familiar path into rugby. I went off to university and, and studied a, a law degree that you mentioned. And um, so I suppose when I started playing rugby, I was immediately thrown in with the Players Association because they thought, oh, well, you're, <laughs> you, you, you can be our representative, even though I'd just started and um, playing that was, and normally that's the role of sort of someone with 10 years experience. But um, so, yeah, I, I was involved with Players Association in New Zealand um, my whole career. And then, and I, you know, by the end, I was pretty actively involved. I, I enjoyed what they did. I, I saw the value. Um, and I think New Zealand has, you know, the relationship they have with players is, is pretty special and, and I think it's good. So I, I saw the, the benefit um, of a strong player voice. And so, you know, from when I was finishing and, and looking for things to do, uh, going into a player association role and by then with international rugby players was sort of, uh, you know, it was a logical option. And yeah, and, and that's the way it's just really worked out. I, I started pretty casually. So I, I finished playing in France and they international rugby players based in Dublin and um, so I'd sort of work a day or two a week um, as I was sort of dabbling in a little bit of coaching as well and then um, largely due to COVID the coaching <laughs> or living in France became a bit of a challenge so we came back to New Zealand and then I was now you know working remotely from New Zealand but you know sort of closer to full time with uh, international rugby players and working with people like yourself and I've enjoyed it. It's it's um, it's never smooth. The any sportsman will tell you there's uh, there's tough times when you finish playing, but um, I've I've sort of fallen into a role that I'm enjoying, and um, yeah, happy to see how far and how long it goes. Was that role you had because you you got your first All Black cap at 22, so that mm. was that was pretty soon after finishing your studies, I would have thought, and. You find yourself an All Black and a representative on the players' agency. There was it always with a welfare focus in mind. Um, no, I, I, I'd say to be honest, like my biggest motivation. Well, yeah, well, firstly, um, like you say, it, it happened very quickly. From I was a you know full time law student, and within it was about fourteen months, I was playing my first All Black test, and. You know that that wasn't by design. That was, um, you know, I, I 
played for a couple of teams that played really well. And, um, you know, I had a good, it was two seasons really. And, and I was in the All Blacks. Um, but I found myself, you know, with a law degree and I quickly realised how fortunate I was because most players I played with weren't given the opportunity to have that sort of education because, and, and it's even more so now, you know, you, you pulled mm. out of um, school, even, even in New Zealand. And I know it's, you know, in other sports, it's even, it's even worse. But um, so, yeah, I, I saw myself fortunate. I looked at a lot of players and, and realised, um, you know, I, I just felt that the sport owed a lot of its players you know, the opportunity to develop their education and develop the skills for life after sport. And, and that's always been my main motivation around player associations, um, helping players, you know, for life after life after sport. Not not and the welfare side's obviously um and well, you could say that is an element of welfare. Um, but there's, you know, the welfare on the field, but also, you know, that welfare off the field, looking after players, um, giving them whether it's, you know, education, but not in the sorry, tertiary sense, you know, that might be for a handful mm. of players, but even just opportunities to develop themselves so that, you know, when the rugby career finishes, they're ready to move into something else, whether that's through the contacts I've made or from the opportunities I've taken outside of, you know, their rugby career. Um, and, you know, it, because the, the opposite is, is the sad stories that I've seen and, and you know, I'm sure the most people hear about is that sportsmen finish their careers and, and go into a bit of a hole. And at worst, it's really nasty where they're depressed and don't have any meaning. And, um, you know, even there's a, there's a lot more that might not get to that level, but they're still unemployed and find a, you know, spend a long time trying to find some other, course in life that that gives them even you know some sort of uh meaning and and motivation to sort of get up in the morning yeah fair i mean that's for sure a problem for every one sports person who goes into the media or gets some sort of corporate gig afterwards there's probably 49 who <laughs> we have no idea what they do right yeah and and you know the what i see even those guys that go into the media and corporate you know the it's not really a career that, you know, that, that, and mm. it might be a career for probably, you know, if you take the 10 that go into it, two of them, it will become a lifetime sort of career and they'll really enjoy it. But the, the majority of them would last one or two years and either realize it's not for me or they, you know, the opportunities just aren't there for everyone that wants to do it. So, and it's the same with coaching, you know, like that, that's the other thing that I found even playing. There's a lot of guys, they go to coaching by default because that's, they think, all their knowledge bases around rugby and they think their skills won't apply anywhere else. So they go and coach, you know, five or six of the 20 that coach will enjoy it and find careers. The rest don't enjoy it or, or don't have, um, find that there's not a lot of um, coaching spots out there. You know, you don't even need one, one coach for every uh, 20 players. So, you know, on average, so look, it's, it's a, it's a problem for all sports and, um, you know, that that's part of the reason I, I think there are, you know, there's lots of answers out there. There's lots of people looking to help and um, it, it's, it's a good, it's a cool field to, to be involved in. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the immediate things in terms of helping is some of the stuff that we've done on player welfare. Well, you, the, the players, the players. Um, and that's the main focus of what I wanted to speak to you about because last week it was announced that World Rugby was going to suggest guidelines around contact training. Um, so that that shifts our focus now onto, I guess, immediate welfare of players. I wanted to ask you when was there a point in your career where your welfare became something you were concerned about, if at all? And if there was, do you do you remember the circumstances around it? We suddenly thought, actually. I can't trade this body in. I'd better start really looking nah. after it. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't think um, you know there, there was a there was a point. I, I certainly remember it was probably more of a process. I, like I know when I started, you know, you're young and you don't um, pay nearly as much attention as you do compared to the latter part, you know, of, of your career. You sort of uh, even things like nutrition and 
Um, you, you know, you're getting that advice, but it's it's advice you don't always take on board. You sleep. I sort of, you know, you'd still have late nights, particularly after games. You know, I was still coming off the student life, so around games over weekends, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't always get a good night's sleep. Um, and even through the week, I wouldn't uh, concentrate, like I say, around nutrition. And um, but I, but I think yeah, you you everyone grows up. Um, I know it was probably, again, you know, for me, I, I quickly made the All Blacks and then you get surrounded by a, a mass amount of support, obviously, when you're, when you're making those teams, um, you know, full-time staff that are looking directly at that. And, and I think, um, you know, you're obviously influenced by those sort of people. And so for me, within um, probably within my first three or four years, uh, I sort of realised the, the value and in, in looking after your, yourself um, off the field, the value of your body. And, and I, I suppose I realised, you know, I, I wanted to be in this for the long run. Um, you know, you, you see a lot of guys, whether it's through injury or, or just not looking after themselves, that their careers don't last too long. And I, you know, I was loving the life, not just as an All Black, but as a Hurricane and full-time rugby player. So, you know, if I wanted to do it, for longer than 10 years, then uh, you know, you, you, there's a responsibility to, to look after yourself and there's a lot that goes into it, not just the training, but um, yeah, looking after your body when you, when you leave the training field. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I suppose for me that, that happened pretty early on, but it, it was mm. certainly something by the end it was, uh, it, it was a massive, you know, massive focus. And I, I think everyone, if you manage to play into your mid-30s, you, you realise the, the importance of, of looking after yourself. Would it be fair to say that, that most of the motivation for looking after yourself as a player is to play longer and better? And was there a moment, and has it even happened now, that you start thinking, actually, it's what happens between the ages of 60 and 80, should I make it that far, that I should really be concerned about? Because that's, that's obviously rugby's big conversation now, is, is later in life outcomes. And I think the one thing we're all, the one piece of rope we're all pulling on is, is how do we make sure that these players are in the best possible shape long after retirement, not while they're playing? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. And, um, and, and that's probably, again, you, I probably would have only thought about that in my last few years. Um, and then in the first few years of my retirement, like just general health, you know, that you just mm. want to, these are the sort of lessons you want to take with you, especially when, you know, you sort of talk about nutrition and um, I don't know, I think about the things around um, just general body. Like I, I wasn't focused on, pushing the most weight, but being flexible and, and, um, you know, just having a good body balance that, that, that's sort of something you want to carry on forever. But like you say, during your rugby career, you just want to be the best rugby player. And so you're, all you're thinking about is, and, and rightly so performance and being as fast and as strong and as dynamic as possible. So, uh, but yeah, it's, and, and I think that is, that is changing to an extent. I don't want to speak, you know, for players, at the moment, given I'm now retired, but um, I'm, I'm pretty pretty sure guys are a lot more conscious of, of just general health, um, you know, particularly in, in, in the headspace. I, I know they are, but um, yeah, it, it's it is, it is a real uh, focus around um, teams and professional teams at the moment. Mm, I mean, I was going to ask you to speak about that now and ask whether you had the impression that it was changing. So if we think about the contact load guidelines, I mean, that is an obvious effort to try to protect players against loads now that might have consequences in the future. And and now, of course, because you get injured in training, that's that's potentially career affecting anyway. Um, do you ever, in, in, in your new role, do you ever have concerns that it's almost like a paradox that our attempts to try and make people aware of these risks and what needs to be done to protect them is actually going to make them nervous and put people off the sport. How do you, how do you juggle promoting and urging caution at the same time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a good point. Um, I, I think in, in, you know, like, and during the course of this, work you sort of realize that there's there's obviously different levels you know within rugby and at the and at the elite level 
you know, the, there's a lot of great people, great science, um, you know, the trainers are highly skilled, highly um, knowledgeable individuals. And, and so, and even a lot of this that, that we've done and that the studies come up, come up with the, the elite teams follow this. Like you, you take this to the South Africans, the French national team, the, the all blacks, they'd, they'd sort of tell you, you know, we, we know a lot of this and we, we follow it already. We know that minimal dose to, you know, we don't want to do too much contact training because we know Saturday's our main focus and we want, you know, the guys prime for that. Um, and so I think a lot of the education um, will be at that the, those lower levels, and, and I don't just mean lower as in younger, but even um, you know, we, we talked about the Pro D so that second division in, in, in France, and maybe the lower level. If I talk about here in New Zealand, the the, the NPC, and um, I, I think so. The players at, at that level, I, I think. Um, you know, there's there's no harm in, in making them aware and, and the coaches obviously as well. Um in, in those environments of the of the of the sort of training methods and, and the optimal training times, um, whether it's with full contact or set piece or control contact. Uh and may, maybe like you say, they would start thinking about these things more and and um almost creating a problem that isn't there. But uh I, I think that knowledge is is out there anyway, and, and it's um, particularly in the in the last couple of years, it, it's a, it's a topic that most um, players talk about within them, you know, within themselves. So showing them and giving them sort of uh, a direction and and showing that particularly from a world rugby and international rugby players that we've thought about it and trying to offer some guidelines around it, I, I think mm. will be uh, well received. Yeah, so that brings us on to those guidelines, and uh, maybe we can very quickly just summarize them for those who haven't seen it. I'll also, in the show notes, post some links to the material. And if you're involved in coaching or even playing in any capacity, I would highly encourage you to look not only at the summary document, the infographics, but the full document, because it explains how the process was done and the principles that underpin it. But I guess the first question is, and and this goes to some of the criticism that I've seen on Twitter, and I'm going to read some to you in a moment, almost for a laugh, is um, why should a sports governing body, World Rugby or National Union, tell people how much to train? Um, Yeah, I I think because they care. Like, I think they they care, like, about the sport. um, And they've obviously... They're seeing some of the uh, the news or the what's being said about the sport that it's dangerous that you know and, and it's and it hurts the sport it hurts me as a, a follower you know I, I don't mind the the discussion but when you know people come out and say that kids shouldn't be playing rugby um, you know you, you want to offer some balance around that and sort of ask some questions as to why that they're saying that. And so World Rugby, I think quite rightly, have said, um, you know, taking this whole issue, what what can we do around um, the, the bigger picture and, and showing that we're looking after players and, you know, this is how this whole sort of idea came about to, to show we are looking after players. Let's look at, um, firstly, ask the question how, how much they're training um, because that that's a you know part of that discussion as well the effect on players' body not, is not just the games but the training and so then you know to, to look at how much they are actually training what's going on in these trainings and then to sort of offer some guidelines as to what should be done and um, to look after players and and mm-hmm. yeah I, that's that's the I, I think what everyone will certainly you know we were part of the group and that's the the approach that that we all had to it and um, I think it was really positive. Yeah. I like- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
I, I like that short and sweet, the, the three words, because they care. The uh, point is, this also came from the international rugby players. This wasn't as though some distant body in a building filled with lawyers and suits were saying, this is what thou shalt do, one commandment. Yeah. It was actually an initiative by the players, yourselves, and, and I think that's important for people to understand. So that's the why. Uh, let's talk about the what. So in summary... We have full contact, controlled contact, and live set piece. Do you want to just very quickly run through what the limits or the recommendations are? Yes, yeah, so there was a 15-minute um, limit around full contact. And, yeah, so, you know, in its simplest terms, that's where the teams are playing in a game-like situation. Um, it's obviously not a lot, and I, I think most people, and again, you know, teams will tell you, you probably, you know, you, you do that, a couple of times a week and it would be five to seven minutes where the teams often the the opposition would run their the the team you're playing their sort of um their plays against you and it would be live contact um you then you've got control contact which is 40 minutes so that would be more with pads as as it said controlled so it would be your, your drills but still still where you're trying to get a bit of contact so that the players prepare for you know the physicality of rugby and then the, the final was the set-piece contact, which is 30 minutes. And that's, you know, this has caused a bit of debate, as you know, but the reality is that there's a lot of, uh, you know, particularly around scrum and then with the line-out around mauling, um, they are forward-dominated areas, but uh, they are things that, you know, there is a degree of contact in them and players need to, to practice that to prepare for, for the weekend. So that's the, you know, allowance for that. Right, so whatever negative comments I've seen, and there have been a couple, admittedly um, dwarfed compared to the positive, which I think is great, have been people saying 15 minutes is crazy low. You'll never prepare a rugby player in that time. This is ridiculous. You're asking these players to go and play and they can hardly practice at all. So let's just maybe reassure people that those those limits, the 15, the, the, the 40, and the 30, that's pretty close to what top level players are doing right now. Absolutely, yeah. I, and I look. I, I would, uh, and and they are variable. Like again, and I'm glad you pointed out. Like there's a lot of detail. People are just pulling out these numbers, but I'm sure, and I trust that coaches will will look at not only the infographics that were released, but the deeper report. But um, to know that you know. Outside of those numbers, you you got to look at players, assess where you are in the season, um, and and I can tell for myself, you know, like to prepare for a game. By the end of my career, I would need probably five minutes of full contact a week, um, you know, like. And again, this is when I've after having played for twelve years um, at professional rugby, and if and if this was me after you know mid or towards the end of a season where I've come off you know, three or four months of, of regular game time, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to need to bash myself, you know, and, and this is where the control contact, like I, I would just hit a hit shield for four or five tackles, you know, on Tuesday and Thursday training, and, and that's that's me done. I'm, I don't need to, um, you know, put any more stress on the body and, and save it for, for a Saturday. And this is what, you know, a lot of, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be unusual or, very different than, than most guys um, at, at a high level nowadays. So, yeah, the, the, those those numbers you you can still easily prepare a team even at the start of a season for a for a mm. full game of rugby. You know, coaches yeah. be more than happy to work within that. Which is maybe a good opportunity to also just point out to listeners that the the, the panel of people who came up with this are not some, as I mentioned earlier, people distant from the sport. I mean, it's yourself. It was Joe Schmidt. It was um, Nick Gill, who would have been your your S&C guy. Uh, Stuart Lancaster, who's not really an amateur coach. I mean, these are the top minds in the sport. And if they're saying it's enough, then... Twitter warriors might need to <laughs> reconsider before they type, but we know that doesn't happen. So here, what, let, let me just read you one example. Imagine only training 10 kilometers a week to run a 42-kilometer marathon or three rounds a week of boxing when training for a 12-round bout. If anything, these lo- guidelines will cause more injuries. You cannot expect a player to take contact for 80 minutes when his body is only used to 15 minutes. So tackle that. 
<laughs> all right look it, it's just yeah the, get, go along to a training like you know go spend a spend a week with a professional rugby team you know the work that gets done and there is a lot of work um this is not limiting the amount of times that guys will be in looking at computers analyzing warming up do it and and this is you know the the drills with the ball but it's just without the contact but this is based on you know knowledge you cannot and and this is like I say before the study was even done these sort of numbers were what would be used because they they know from players you can't just keep beating them up you know week on week as right. even if we wanted to like you know yeah. even if we had a real thirst for physicality you're just not going to perform on a Saturday so it's actually you know it's optimal preparation and um, that that's what's practiced by the elite team and, and this is. It's why you know the whole the whole idea of it's best practice just to to show um, you know people like the guy that was writing that remark you know, just yeah. provides a bit of education like this is this is the reality and um, yeah it's it's serving that purpose yeah and the people who need education are the, the ones least um, likely to receive it when it is given to them unfortunately I, I would have said to that also even marathon runners don't prepare for marathons by running marathons. <laughs> So you don't you don't practice the London Marathon seventeen times before you hit the start line. Yeah. Here's here's another one, and I and I regretfully announce that this is a South African, and it's classically in keeping with some South African attitudes. He says, "Is the fifteen minutes before or after the knitting and folk dancing?" <laughs> so anyway, no response, no response needed to that. But that's the kind of thing. When you were just on that note, when you were when you were a player, was the practice different from compared to now? I know it wasn't that long ago, but no, yeah, it's good. Well, I mean, even in the course of my career, I, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I saw a, a big shift in training you know um techniques or not techniques but just the the format of of trainings it became a real you know trainings were shorter if anything because during you know my career seasons became a lot longer you know in new zealand yeah the super rugby extended the tri-nations extended and so there was a real understanding around look we're, we're together and um as you're, you're with these players and with professional rugby teams for 11 months of the year, whereas when I started, it was closer to eight. Um, and so the amount that you're going to be on the training field is considerably long. And so everything was was a lot more precise. There was a lot more, you know, the science particularly came into it probably in my sort of last five, six years, mm. but all around, you know, timings, there were timekeepers, there were, the coaches were all wired up on radios with the trainer who was telling everyone there was live monitoring of players around heart rates, GPS numbers, like all that happened in the space of my career. And, you know, and the effect was quite considerable in, in terms of trainings becoming shorter, but a lot more um, focused, you know, you was a clear goal around each. So if you were doing the, you know, you were coming into the contact, all the players knew when the, the contact part of training was on, it would start, it would finish at a set time, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, and, and for the good, like this was all around looking after players so that, you know, the performance would be better on a weekend. Yeah, and in, in South Africa, I don't know if it was the same where you were, but there were some coaches who were maybe of the school of thought of this comment that I just read to you, which if anyone's in any doubt is the, is the kind of culture around rugby that we're trying very hard to eradicate, never mind the casual sexism in that comment but we used to have something called copper stump in South Africa which is an Afrikaans word that literally means headbang and coaches would typically do that almost as punishment for a poor performance at the weekend and you'd show up on a Monday and it was going to be twice as hard as the game you just played was that is that something you still I'm sure that does still exist I mean not at the elite level but that sort of attitude is out there Oh, for sure. And, and that's, you know, like I sort of said earlier, like this is what would be great, like if anything, that the education from this piece provides to, and, and the numbers, you know, we've, we've seen the numbers from the survey, the numbers were of contact were a lot higher the lower the league. And mm. I guarantee it wouldn't just be South Africa, it would be France, New Zealand, England. Um, there would still be coaches and even players that would agree with the idea that if you miss 10 tackles on a weekend, then everyone has to make 40 tackles, you know, 
on a Tuesday training after the game that you lost, like more is better. This whole idea that that somehow is you need to punish a team for a poor performance. And the only way to do that is mm. train even longer or to do even more, you know, full contact. And that that's, yeah, that's not helpful. So mm. um, <laughs> that's, that's what this is um, trying to address, I suppose. Yeah. So there were a few questions I saw. This was the constructive discussion is, is okay, fine. This is for the elite game in season, but now I coach 13 year olds, 16 year olds, whatever it is. What am I supposed yeah. to do with this? I only see my players, twice a week so what's the point to me and I I, I suppose I want to hand over to you in a moment but just to say it's the principles are what matters and I think you mentioned something earlier about smallest effective dose maybe just very because I think that's really the key thing that underlines this whole thing so maybe in your own words what what are we saying to coaches at all levels here yeah I I, I, because I agree like that's it's a good question um about the, the answer around principles is spot on and that, you know, that optimal dose. So you just, uh, you got to think about, obviously you're, you're preparing whether it's 16 year olds, 17 year olds to, to, to play on a Saturday. It's a, it's a physical sport, but you want to provide the least amount and, and that's um, going to be variable based on, you know, who, who you're working with. Um, but you, you would obviously get to that point. We, we've seen it, it's around, and again, the, the numbers of 15 minutes of full contact, that's what we feel based on the experience of the elite teams and, and coaches, that, that any more than that, you're actually elevating the risk of injury and not really preparing them any better for the Saturday. You've, right. you've got your preparation nailed. And so if you go beyond that number, you're actually placing them at risk. Under that number, they still might be prepared and they'll be ready. And and so that's that's that sweet spot we're sort of looking for and and I suppose you use that principle to apply it to different athletes um, but mm. you know I, I would say the same thing you, you can you can achieve so much and you know I don't want to talk too much about the age grade but I've, I've sort of been doing a bit with the younger the school sports here in New Zealand and you don't need a lot of full contact you know when you're at that development stage i just think there is huge value in that like this is where i'd look at the controlled contact yeah of those guidelines and that's where you get all your learning you know you can do a lot of if you're teaching young men and women to tackle you know you're doing it in a controlled environment of course you're then going to open up into the uncontrolled the game-like situations but before that you can spend most of your time with pads, with just nutting out the actual technique, footwork, shoulder placement, all, all that good stuff um, can be done in a controlled environment before you need to um, open it up to, to the life the life situation. Yeah, and that's, that's really important because a lot of people and a lot of the media outlets carry the 15-minute headline and no yeah. one saw beyond that to see actually there's 40 minutes of controlled contact. And, and in fact, this is another reason to go away and read the full document because you'll see yeah. we, 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 we unpacked what are the elements that make contact dangerous. So it's the intensity, how fast are you entering it? It was the degree of unpredictability. So in other words, yeah. did the tackler know what the ball carrier was about to do and vice versa? It was density and volume. And so you can play with those four. And so it's anyway, it's all explained there. So I think that's that's particularly important. Um, and then just on the on the principles, I suppose the the other way to phrase it is quality, not quantity. Yeah, yeah, oh, exactly. And and I, I just I suppose to pick up that point around the the control, like I, I used myself as an example before, and um, it wouldn't be uncommon to to say like I wouldn't even need that full fifteen minute um, full contact, but I'd always use that forty minute control contact. You know that mm. that's that's, you know, that's, as an experienced player, that's all I'd need to get that sweet spot of preparation for a, for a Saturday, you know, like just tackling on, on pads, um, simple controlled environment where it's a one-on-one, you know, I'm not going to get suddenly hit from the side, S- similar to my clean out work, just very controlled environment. As soon as you, um, you know, you add that variability of, of, of a game-like situation where it's unpredictable, you know, that, that's where the injury risk heightens. And, um, you know, you, you need a little bit of that, but I'd, I'd save that for, for, a, for a weekend if I'm in that sort of situation, you know, where I've 
been playing for a you know three or four months and, and an experienced player, um, mm. and, and that's what I, I suppose I'm talking about. And, and that's you know answer to your question. That for me is quality training. You know, and, and I don't need to do a lot of it. You do it as a real high quality. I'm focusing on one specific goal or area around my tackle or around my clean out, and then that's it. Yeah, exactly right. So just because um, as the scientist, I do think in terms of graphs. So just to pick up something you were saying earlier about the smallest effective dose is imagine imagine a graph of my ability to tackle safely and effectively as a function of tackling time or number of tackles. And that graph's going up and up and up. The more I tackle, the better I get. Eventually that gets flat. Yep. And at the point that it gets flat, if you continue to tackle, you're doing too much. That's what we're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and yeah, you you're not benefiting yourself anymore. And and anyone, you know, you talk to pro players like this is this is important, and a good coach will always know when when you're doing too much. And you know, anecdotally, mm. you'll talk if, if you're doing you know anything over literally a dozen live tackles. I, I think that's that, that's too much. You know, mm. Mm. in a, in a week or in a session, in in a session. Sorry, right. yeah, in, yeah. in a session, and you might want to do um, you know you might do a couple of top that um, in a week, but yeah, you, you're doing over. If you're doing up around 20 tackles, you know, we're talking live again. Like, I, I, I'd no problem doing that with a hit shield, you know, clean one-on-one. But if you're talking about live tackles, because guys don't make often more than 12 tackles in a game, you know. So, right, right. Um, you know, you, you have to get Lucy's to get anywhere near 20 tackles in a game. So, Yeah, fair. Um and then the final the final point I guess that I want to head off is is people say, well, it's all good and well, you've got guidelines, but now what are you going to do? Monitor it. And the, the point is they're guidelines, so therefore they are not going to be monitored. And then people will ask, well, what's the point? So maybe we can just talk a little bit about enforcement and how we expect it to filter down and actually influence behavior. Yeah, well, and, and I think this is, um, you know, something that's, I've, I've I've learned a lot about you know through this process and and I think we are going to rely a lot on the, the science coming out and and I've been um, you know encouraged by the number of or the amount of research that is now being done to monitor training loads and to really to wait to see what that that sort of data gives us before you would ever take this a step further and make it mandatory, if, if that makes sense. Because I, I think a lot of, um, for example, we're talking about tackles. So if we, and we're saying, right, the tackle on a hit shield is controlled and that and we're giving that a longer allowance, say 40 minutes. But we, we're still waiting on the science around, you know, the, the, what is the level of force in those tackles? And maybe we find that even though you're hitting a hit shield, it's actually quite significant and we need to actually provide uh, more um, restrictions around the amount mm. of tackles on a hit shield that you make. But at the moment, we don't, we think it's all anecdotal. We think, oh, that's a bit safer. You can do more of that um, and less of the, the live tackling. But yeah, we, we don't know that. And so we're waiting on the research. A lot of that's being done. Hopefully that's going to come out, you know, I know these things take time. You know that better than me. Um, but within a year or two, I think the science will, and if it supports what we're um, saying, you know, based on the survey and anecdotally, then sure, the restrictions can become even firmer, and you know, and and if and if required, I, I I'd like to think though that these are these are best practice guidelines, and a lot of people will follow them because they obviously are helping your team win. Like this is the right. idea; they're not purely welfare; they are. Well, I mean, they are welfare, but they help with our performance base as well. Like this is the the beauty of them; they they are to to help a team win. To lowering injuries is um, you know benefits the team's performance. Exactly, and I mean, you'd know better than anyone that you can't trade performance off against welfare because people won't adopt it. So, whatever welfare solution we come up with has to do either nothing to affect performance, or it has to actually improve performance. And I think in the past where there have been tensions between, like, say, science and medicine, which I represent, and coaching and players, is that 
people do sometimes perceive that there's a tension, that we want welfare mm. at the expense of performance. This is actually a very obvious example of where welfare and performance are married and cannot be separated. Because exactly. if you, and, and that's, that's what I was saying to some people is, if a group of these coaches, these players, these doctors and S&C experts are saying 15 minutes, 40 minutes, and you want to go do 45 minutes of full contact and an hour and a half of controlled, well, good luck. Because you're actually, you're either going to hope for luckiness, you just hope for good luck, or you're going to injure your players. So it, <laughs> so it's, it's like we don't want to baby people and stand there with a stopwatch. No, I couldn't say it any better. You're spot on. And it's, um, you know, and, and the, the coaches, you know, like, and this is, you, you've just said it, but there's coaches in the group and they all understand the, the value of keeping a squad healthy, you know, that mm. there's, and there's clear science behind it. Like in all there sports, is. it's the teams that keep your squad healthy win. Yeah, that's <laughs> they, true. They win, they win games, they win championships. It's, it's, there's a clear correlation. So, um, yeah, what yeah. You're so it's actually one of the easier things to sell because whether your mm. incentive is welfare or performance, you're ending up doing the same thing. We think same thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think we've pretty much covered off the the, the load part of it. So, I mean, I, and I hope that anyone who's listening to this again, whether you're a parent, a coach, an elite player, a sub elite player with aspirations, you understand a little bit about why and how and what was done. I did want to ask you a couple of things. You you mentioned earlier, this is the more serious one, and then I want to ask you something more, maybe less serious, uh, about when you see articles about kids and they shouldn't be playing rugby and shouldn't be tackling. What do you say to a parent listening to this podcast who has those same questions in their head? I would say, and, you know, I've got a son, he's seven years old, he's playing rugby, um, he's starting to tackle. I... I look, I, I understand the, the concerns when you see kids as young as seven um, tackling, but I am still of the opinion, and I'm happy to be convinced otherwise, but at that age, that is when, you know, when I look at the, the speed of the rugby, which obviously isn't, isn't of a huge acceleration, they're not playing at huge speed. Mm. To learn tackling at that age is so much beneficial because then I look at kids that are 13 if they haven't tackled up until they're 13 and then they are running at almost double the speed and almost double the velocity into collisions. And they're you know, twice I, the size. I, and they're twice the size. Mm. That that would be my only worry. Because I and it's it's a real debate in New Zealand. They're oh look, stop but no tackling until they're twelve or thirteen. But yeah, I I would, you know. Tackling can be safe, like, <laughs> and, it, mm. and it's a, it's a great. It's what I loved about the game, and I, you know, if my son's going to play rugby, I want him to have made a thousand tackles by the time he's thirteen, so that when he's thirteen and there's a guy running at a significant velocity, then he knows exactly where to put his head to avoid, you know, collision to, with the hard parts of the body. He's done it a thousand times. Boom! It's a safe activity. It's it's fun. He enjoys it. Um, yeah, that, that, that's all I'd say on that. I mean, again, it's it's not something I uh, am an expert in. I've only just sort of started thinking about it now as a as an ex player in it, but as a parent. So, but mm. yeah, it, it's it is my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I began with World Rugby. It was in 2015 that year, and and the very first thing I remember having to do was write a an academic response to a group of scientists in the UK who were making that argument. And we said the same thing, is that if the longer you delay technical competence, the more you shift the risk to a dangerous time in the person's life. And it's interesting, we're seeing research now in women, and I think it's fair to say that in most places, New Zealand maybe is ahead of the curve, in most places women don't play from a young age. They take rugby up maybe even after school. And... I, th I think there's a disproportionate risk of certain injuries in a tackle because they haven't acquired that competence. That's my hypothesis, by the way. Mm. So I, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Well, yeah, and, and, and speaking, because on the same point, I was speaking to some of the, the women that are doing the research, and they've and you'd know more about this than me, but they've even talked about um, girls, just the fact that they don't, they don't wrestle and play as much 
typically in, as they grow up. And so they're, they're not as naturally accustomed to the whole dynamics that in a tackle. And so when you watch a, even a, a young girl in the tackle, it's more of that ragdoll effect. They don't have the, the same. And you can only put that down to the fact that boys, similar in a tackle, they're, they're doing it all the time, not just playing rugby, but they're playing scrag, they're pulling each other down. And mm. yeah, it's... Um, it's 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 really interesting, and I you know you, you do see the the sense in it. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. And then and then the final question is um, <laughs> the way I introduced you was sort of tongue in cheek, and you then picked it up by saying some of your best memories were playing against the box here in South Africa. Around the tackle specifically, I I always wonder in the change room before you go out to play, are, are you are you psyching yourself up into a state of aggression? to dominate physically or are you trying to calm yourself down in order to execute tactically? My, because my impression of you was always that you were outthinking us, you specifically, <laughs> and, and New Zealand. And, and this is a horrible generalization, but I think South Africa was going out there to dominate you physically and you were going out there to dominate us tactically. And I just wondered if you could give us an insight into your mind before a game. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good deep question. I, I think there's a, bit, a element of both. I, I certainly, I think before a test match, um, especially you know when I was in South Africa, that whole you, you're sort of preparing yourself physically all week, and then you know come you know you talk about just in the changing rooms, it, it's clarity of thoughts. So I'm, I'm very much of the you know calming myself down to be mm. to think clearly so that when I go onto the to the field. Um, you know, you, you you're not thinking too much about the other stuff. You're um, trying to you know see pictures very clearly. But um, yeah, that that generalisation there may have an element of truth to it. But I I think that's why we love you know in New Zealand and South Africa share such a special history of playing one another. Um, you know that that the physicality it, it's it's such a part of rugby. It's a special part. And you know when you play each other, it's uh, it's always where it's sort of the, the, the game will start. I, I think, you know, the, the way South Africa play, I, I still think, you know, they're very tactical in what they do and it's, it's just might be different tactics sometimes than, than what we'd employ. But uh, no, I, yeah, I, I think there's there's just ele- elements of both and it just it depends. It depends also the, the game I was playing, you know, sometimes I would having to be, get myself physically prepared because, I'd be a little bit too relaxed, you know, if I was playing club rugby or you mm. know, back with, the, you know, but certainly before a, a South African match, um, I'd, I'd just be trying to think clearly to, to survive, to survive the 80 <laughs> minutes that I knew I was about to play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is a, it is a very binary generalized question that I asked because you're, you're right. I mean, we, we do, we do have this reputation as being just physical and we're not, it's clearly we're not. No. And, there's actually very intelligent thought goes into to what we do, but it's I guess it's so easy for the media to to create um, contrasts and then sell narratives around it, and that sort of feeds it. And it's, it did that recently, I, I think, also with the British and Irish Lions, and to the detriment of some <laughs> some of the on-field yeah. stuff. But um, yeah, just I've always I've always just wondered, you know, because even in the media, the week before a test, you'll see saying, players saying, you know, it's going to be one in the physical battle. We must dominate mm-hmm. the breakdowns and so on, and and um, and then when there are to bring this back to welfare, when there are injuries and welfare considerations, people say, well, it's it's because there's just it's just physically monstrous humans smashing into each other with aggression for eighty minutes, and and I wonder if, what the solution is. Yeah, yeah, I, I think yeah. I mean, and and you're right. Maybe we we play that up a bit too much, even even as players. Whereas you know, we I think we all agree. Like the beauty of rugby, or well, the thing I love about it is 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 the the tactical part of it. No ga- one game's ever the same. You know, I look at other sports and and think that's what we have over other sports. There's no one way to play rugby. There's no one solution there's always an answer you know that's what I used to love to say like whatever you see as a problem there's an answer you you just got to find it in rugby there's so many different um, ways to play the game to win the game Um, 
So, you know, it's definitely, it's the tactical part of it is, is, is what makes it special. And there's a physical element that people love to talk about and to play up and, and that's, and that's obvious, but uh, you know, there, there's so much more to it. That's there's no doubt about that. All right. Great pitch for rugby to end. I think that's an appropriate note. Thanks so much for your time. I hope that those listening, um, certainly with respect to the contact load guidelines, understand a little more and will be motivated to go and actually read the full document and learn about those principles to to apply. Last word to you um, on let's 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 leave it off with a, a, a pitch for welfare in rugby from you. <laughs> but, no, I, I think that this this um, this contact project has been a, a great you know step forward in collaboration between World Rugby and International Rugby Players, and you know to say what I said before, it's because we care, we care about the game, and it's sort of taken a few hits, you know, its reputation and in terms of some of the the stories that have come out about um, past players, but you know that that's uh, there's there's so much good and so many great stories that come out of rugby um, that, you know, we need to keep working on it and, and making it as safe as we can so that we all get to enjoy, um, you know, the great parts about it. Great pitch. And if my pitch would be that you can be confident because there are good people working for the welfare of players and Conrad Smith is one of those. Thanks very much for your time, Conrad Smith. Not a problem. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>